Well, the first big idea that we see in our passage today is what's written here on the whiteboard. God has chosen to save only a remnant of Israel at the present time, and He's not unjust for doing so. This is what Paul is presenting to us in Romans chapter 9, that there is a remnant at the current time, only a remnant. Now, I struggled with where to place only in this sentence. I, I thought about putting it before chosen, God has only chosen to save a remnant, or God has chosen to only save a remnant, but that kind of diminishes his choice, that diminishes the power of salvation. I didn't want to do that because that he would save one individual is a mighty act, it's a, it's a powerful act, and we should never look at it as just one person or just a remnant uh, because it's an amazing thing. So I don't want us to see that God's power is in any way diminished, but it is true that God has chosen to save only a remnant of Israel at the present time, and He's not unjust for doing so. So as you consider that, and as you looked over our verses for today, if you came in late, we're in verses 14 through 18 of Romans 9, Romans 9, 14 to 18. What's our response to the concept, the the teaching in Scripture that God chooses people for salvation apart from their will? What's your response to that? Okay. Good. What else? What other gut responses do you have to this sovereign choice of God? Okay, that's a very Romans 9 response. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Steve. Right, right. People want to be uh, insidious evil. Then Who wants to be insidious and evil? A lot of people want to be all of us. Yeah. Well, yeah, so you said there's a lot of us, and then Jerry said all of us. There's a, little, there's a gap there between those answers. There you go. All right, good, good, good. So um, what we need to be careful about when we consider God's sovereign work in saving individuals apart from their wills, we need to be careful in saying uh, or avoid saying, well, that's not fair, or saying, well, that's unjust. That's exactly what Paul's addressing here uh, when he says in verse 14, there is no injustice with God, is there? And of course, the answer is no, there's not. So we don't say that's not fair. We don't say that's unjust. And heaven forbid we ever say, well, that's sinful that God would do such a thing. In our flesh, we can start to think that way because we have preconceived ideas of how everything's supposed to work, don't we? And when we take those ideas to the Word of God, what position should our ideas be in when we compare them to the Word of God? They should be in a position of submission, yielding, right? Because whatever the Word of God teaches, that's what we believe. Steve. Mm-hmm. Let me have animals. Yeah. And so that's what the devil did. And Job's uh, uh, response was in a brief form, make it a tameless world, make it a heedless world. The Lord give it, the Lord take it away. Blessed be the Lord. And all this, Job did not uh, charge God foolishly. Right. And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And what we find typically when we interact with with most people is that they're okay up to that point, especially when you look at the life of Job. Okay, uh, God took all of his, his possessions. You think of his animals and stuff. Okay, he did that. A lot of people can come to grips with that relatively quickly. There will be some struggles. And then you get to, okay, well, God, he touched his family, right? He, he did things to Job's family members. And people really struggle with that. And there will be some people who come through that and say, okay, all right, well, God is God. But then when you get to the issue of salvation, it's like now we're getting even farther down the road in an individual salvation. 
And then we start thinking, well, God wouldn't be sovereign over that, would he? Well, that's what Paul's addressing in Romans 9. It's pretty direct to the individual salvation of the people we know and people who have lived in this world. God is sovereign in those matters. Andy. Yes, we're, com- we're going to come back to that. So save... Yes, yes, so yeah, keep that in mind. That'll be the last 15% of the lesson today, if we get there. <laughs> so um, what I want to do right now is keep your finger in Romans 9 or bookmark it somehow and go all the way back to Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, chapter 32, and I want you to see something about the character of God as it's described in Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4, because we're embracing what the Scripture is teaching us in Romans 9 today, that in God's sovereignty, He is not unjust. In God's sovereignty, He maintains perfect justice in all things, even when it comes to choosing individuals for salvation. And let's look at verses 3 and 4 of Deuteronomy 32. Who can read that for us? Yeah, the 3 and 4 of Deuteronomy 32. All right, especially verse 4 there, take hold of that and hold on to that, embrace that, don't let that slip through your fingers, don't lose sight of that. Deuteronomy 32.4, God's work is perfect, all His ways are just, He is faithful, He's without injustice, He is righteous and upright. Okay, hang on to that. That's a very important verse about the character of God. And what we're going to be faced with today in Romans 9... I've already written it on here, but I think I have to maybe adjust the angle. There we go. This handy little device that Tyler got for us. Uh, The Creator is absolutely free to glorify Himself by governing His creatures according to His will alone. It's a pretty big statement. Uh, This is a statement that I wrote when I debated uh, an atheist on morality talking about God being the moral authority of the universe. God is the reason why we have morality. Why why does right and wrong exist? Well, because of God. He is the definition of what is true and good. And what it follows from that is that He, as Creator, want to dwell on that name of His. He's the only Creator. Everything else is a part of creation. You and me, we're parts of creation. He's the Creator. No one created God. No one came before God. He is the only eternal. The Creator is absolutely free. Important phrase. He's absolutely free. Because what we're being confronted with in Romans 9 is either creation is absolutely free or God is absolutely free. One of them is going to be beholden to the other. And what we're learning in our study in Romans, is God is the free one. He's the only absolutely free. And what's He doing? Well, He's glorifying Himself. This is what He does, the answer to all the why questions that are out there about God. Why does God do this? Why does God do that? Why didn't He do this? Whatever. Well, He's glorifying Himself. So, when you ask, well, why did God? Because what He decided to do was the way that He received the most glory. God's bringing glory to Himself and His sovereign work in the universe. And it's right for Him to do it because He's Creator. It's wrong for any creature to do such a thing. But if you are the eternal uncaused cause, the eternal Creator, the one who's over, outside and over all time, space, and matter, it's absolutely right for you to glorify yourself. And so it's right that God glorifies Himself. He's not egotistical. He's not selfish. He's right in doing that because He deserves glory. And he's glorifying himself by governing his creatures. So God is the supreme governor, the supreme capital G governor, and he's governing his creatures who are not absolutely free because God is the only absolutely free. And he's governing them to bring glory to himself. And he's doing so according to his will alone. 
You get this in Ephesians 1 and in other places, definitely Romans 9. It's God's merciful choice. It's God's desire. It's God's will. That's what's emphasized in the Scriptures as how He's bringing glory to Himself. He's glorifying Himself by governing His creatures according to His will alone. As you consider the different elements of that sentence, you should start to relax more as you approach passages like Romans 9, where God's bigness, His sovereignty is bumping up against our little creaturely desires and what we think is right. You guys agree with this sentence? You go okay with this sentence? Doing okay? That will get you there. Yeah, Jerry? Yep. That he binds himself. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the belief that we are free agents, um, there are many ways to refute such a thing. You can do so anecdotally. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, growing up, those bad habits that you formed, those sinful actions that you committed growing up that no one taught you how to do, (laughs) and these habits that you formed that are bad, where did those come from? And why do we all have them? That's a pretty strong anecdotal argument, I think, for our natures being not free to do whatever we wish, because none of us has become Christ-like out of our own free will. We all make bad choices, develop sinful habits. We're all rebellious at heart. We know this. That's why we got disciplined by our parents, or at least we should have been. And so, um, anecdotally, we all know that. We could appeal to such common ground as that, but we can also look through the Scriptures where it talks about, in many different places that we are fallen. And if you are fallen, if that's true, you're not absolutely free. That's why Martin Luther wrote the bondage of the will. Our wills are in bondage by nature because we are children of Adam by nature. We have to be adopted to become children of God, but by nature we're children of Adam. Steve, quick comment. Yeah. And he governs and rules over our lives. And we, you know, we have to admit that from our perspective, all we know is what we can see and touch and taste and, and these things in our flesh. And so, in that sense, we have, uh, you know, this experience where it's just like, well, yeah, we're free agents. I picked out my socks this morning. I decided what time I'd drive my car here today. And you just extend that to every part of life and just like, hey, I'm in charge. But then as our spiritual senses are awakened, <laughs> as we encounter the God of the Bible, the God who is, we realize, oh, He's in charge. And so we have to reorient our thinking, and it extends to every part of life. No part of life is really exempt from this at all. And that's where people start to get a little nervous, because we like to hold on to certain things and say, well, no, I'm in charge of this, right? Or I'm in charge of that, right? Well, what's our grounds for saying that? Because what we have today in Romans nine fourteen and following, we have this picture of God who is outside and over, in control, sovereign and active in all things, particularly in salvation. When he's talking about the example of Pharaoh that we'll get to later, for this very purpose I raised you up. God was in charge of raising up Pharaoh. He had a purpose for doing it. That's why Pharaoh was raised up. And continuing on in verse 17, to demonstrate my power in you. God's displaying His power in Pharaoh that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That's a lot of God's sovereignty going on in the life of Pharaoh, isn't it? And so can God freely choose only some? Yes. Can He justly reject others? Yes, He can. And is there some sort of a standard that God must meet, this even spread standard where He has to treat all people 
in the exact same way, interact with people in the exact same way, do all the same things for all people? Is there some sort of a standard that he has to meet where it's an even spread? No. Because he's absolutely free to glorify himself by governing his creatures according to his will alone. And we have to reckon with his will isn't an even spread. That's what the Scripture's teaching us today. You've got to reckon with that. Okay? You've got to deal with the Word of God. And what we see instead of injustice, as we consider the examples that are brought up in our passage, instead of injustice, we actually see an amazing display of God's grace. Consider the, the people who have been involved in Romans 9 so far. Abraham. You remember how Abraham was a liar? Anybody remember that when he lied about his wife? What about his son? <laughs> like father, very good. Did the same thing. Uh, Jacob. How did Jacob achieve his privileged position? We know it was by the sovereignty of God, but through the means of, he deceived his brother, he deceived his father. Jacob was a deceiver. What about Moses? We've got Moses involved today, and we'll see that momentarily. What did Moses do in his life that was really bad? Yeah, he killed a guy with his bare hands. Okay, so now, so we want to jump to say, well, there's injustice with God because He only saves some. And what you need to see is that there's grace with God because He does save some. Okay, we don't look at it and say, okay, well, all people should be saved. If God's going to save some, He should save all. Those ones who were saved didn't deserve to be saved, did they? All of humanity deserves condemnation because of our nature given to us from our father, Adam. And yet God saves some out of grace. We shouldn't look at this and see injustice. We should look at this and see amazing grace. That He sovereignly chose anyone is praiseworthy. Because if God didn't sovereignly choose, who would be saved? Oh, really? If God didn't sovereignly choose, who would be saved? You said it, not me. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, perfect justice could have could have just said you're all written off. You're all condemned and you're stuck. And it's not that God set aside his justice to display his grace. He placed our justice on Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he received the justice we deserve. And so God maintains his justice through displaying his grace. Isn't that amazing? And look at verse 6, uh, same chapter, Romans 9, the start of verse 6, <clears throat> Paul reminds them, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Okay, we'll just take that sentence, just that first part. It's not as though the Word of God has failed. So this idea that God must choose for anyone to be saved really starts here in verse 6. God's Word has not failed because God's power is displayed in salvation his eternal choice of certain individuals, his saving of them in time, this is proving that the Word of God has not failed. But God is still working through His Word and is performing His sovereign work through His Word. Uh, a couple notes real quick before we move on to verse uh, and break down verse 15. Um, I want to be careful in saying God's sovereign work in these things does not render mankind robots. So, not here to uh, make that argument today, that you are all robots. You know you're not a robot, right? Uh, the fact that you still sin proves that you're not a robot. Okay? Yes, Jim? Certainly. I, well, it, and he's still in control of such choices, too, which is a fascinating thing. I mean, you take the life of Jacob, for example, the means by which Jacob achieved the birthright was sin. Yet, it was God's desire 
that he would achieve the birthright, and God hates the sin, though Jacob be in the position that he's in. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. God did not cause Jacob to sin. God's not the author of sin. God did not endorse Jacob's sin. And yet it happened. And God's in control of the whole thing. It's an amazing, amazing thing. He's absolutely in control of the outcome. And God has not chosen everyone. I mean, you, again, Jacob and Esau, God obviously didn't choose Esau, right? He doesn't choose everyone. He chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. And that's not inconsistent with him being right in all that he does. That's not inconsistent with him being uh, just and perfect. There is no injustice with God. Earlier this week, uh, on Wednesday night, we were in 1 Peter 5, and we went back to Ezekiel 9. And Ezekiel was given a vision of Israel's sin and how they've profaned the temple, and um, they were just a, a, their sin was very, very great. I believe there were, uh, that's the passage where God says their uh, sin has become very, very great. And he was given this vision where uh, those who were seeking after the Lord, the God of Israel, they had an X put on their foreheads. They were marked. They were set apart from those who were committing this very, very great sin. And those who did not have the X on their foreheads, it, I shouldn't say X, it was Mark. Um, X marks the spot? I don't know. Uh, those who didn't have the mark were slaughtered. So it's like the inverse of the mark of the beast, right? Um, it was good to have the mark in that vision. And those who didn't have the mark were slaughtered. And the rest, they were a remnant of Israel. And God was explaining to His prophet, there's a remnant still. There is no injustice with God. He's always had His remnant. He's always had His chosen. He's always preserved His people. That's in Ezekiel 9. Yeah, Ezekiel chapter 9. And the way that they received that mark on their foreheads was not through works. It was not because they proved themselves to be good and they were competing with other people in Israel, and they, they crossed the benchmark, and they made it to those who were spared. That's not how they got there. How did they re- get marked by God? By grace through faith. And that's rooted in God's sovereign choice. That's the presentation we have in Scripture of salvation over and over again from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is that God in eternity past chose certain individuals for salvation in time, by grace through faith, their salvation is realized, and God preserves His remnant. And Paul's making this case when he says, again, we'll start in verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For He, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion." So let's go back to where that verse is. That's Exodus 33. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. And I'll get this turned back around to our statement, first statement for our passage today. Exodus 33, and we're going to start in verse 12. Would someone like to go ahead and read verses 12 to 17? Exodus 33, 12 to 17. Who would like to read that for us? Okay. All right, so the context of what's going on here is that the Lord, Yahweh, told the people of Israel, okay, let's go conquer this land, let's go. And he said, I'm going to send an angel before you. 
an, an angel is going to go with you. And the people got all grumpy because they wanted the actual presence of God. They wanted the presence of God to go with them. That's at the start of the chapter. And God tells Moses, look back up at verse 5, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from you that I may know what I shall do with you. So he says, you deserve to be destroyed. Remember, God is holy. And if he were to go among them, they'd be destroyed. So he says, okay, go ahead, take off all your stuff and sit there. And it's like the Lord saying to them, I'm going to go think about what's going to happen next. Now, does the Lord have to go think about and consider what's going to happen next like we do? No, he doesn't. But what he's sovereignly working together is this amazing picture where Moses steps in as intercessor now. And Moses says, okay, well, I'll go talk to God. <laughs> Let's see if we can avoid disaster here in Israel. And Moses goes and talks to God, and that's the passage that Dean just read for us. And he's imploring that the presence of God would be with them, saying, look again at verse 16, for how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us, not the angel, but you, Lord, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all other people who are on the face of the earth? And then you see the Lord saying, okay, I will do this thing which you have spoken. And then he cites these reasons, I, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. So Moses is interceding for obstinate Israel. They angered the Lord. And Moses is speaking as one who has found favor with God. Again, he did not find favor with God by works. It's not that Moses was doing better in obeying, that Moses was doing a really good job in keeping all the laws, and that's why he got favor. He found favor in God's sight because why? Yes, by grace, through faith all rooted in God's sovereign choice. What reasons did God have to choose Moses? Nothing in Moses, right? Other than God is glorifying Himself. This is the same phrase when it says there in verse 17 that Moses found favor in God's sight. That's the same phrase that's used for Noah. All the people on the face of the earth had grown wicked in the days of Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? By God's grace rooted in His sovereign choice, isn't it? And so Moses, stepping in as intercessor with the favor of God, replies to the Lord. Someone want to read verses 18 to 23? Verses 18 to 23 of Exodus 33? Thank you, Walker. Brave young man. All right, so we're pretty familiar with this incident, I would imagine, and there's a lot to talk about, a lot to discuss in that passage, but we're focusing on this quote that Paul used in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. It's right there in God replying to Moses about showing him his glory. And in the middle of this promise of God going with them, God reminds Moses who he is, that he's too glorious to be seen. And that the decision to show grace, mercy, compassion, that is God's choice alone. That is up to God alone as the only truly free agent. It is entirely God's prerogative that God would do such a thing. Now go back to Romans 9 with me, and I want to show you something uh, that Paul is also doing in this passage as he's quoting Old Testament sources if you run your eyes over the quotations in the New American Standard, they're in all caps, so they stand out a little more. 
But in verses 7, 9, 12, 13, 15, 17, we have these quotes from the Old Testament. And you know what's interesting, a, a similarity, something that all of these quotations have in common, is they're all God directly speaking to man. You think that's on purpose as Paul is seeking to emphasize the sovereignty of God in this chapter? That here he is pulling quotes directly from the voice of God through history and applying them to the church. It's an amazing thing. And it's the same in verse 17 with that passage we just read where God spoke to Moses and said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So giving grace and mercy to Moses, giving grace and mercy to Israel, giving grace and mercy to anybody has always been God's sovereign choice as the absolutely free agent of the universe. Rolling with me? Tracking with me? We, we good? <laughs> not seeing a lot of confirmatory faces, but I'm also not seeing any negative faces, so we'll just take, I'll take neutral. Neutral's good. <laughs> um, so the, the principle that Paul is applying to Israel's salvation when he's in Romans 9 here, verse 15, the principle is God choosing to save only a remnant of Israel. It's not that he's unjust for doing so. It's that as a free agent, the only free agent, he's giving grace and mercy to those whom he chooses. Okay? All right. Well, let's keep going through the passage unless we have questions or thoughts. Jerry? Always. No, curveballs are fine. Not mine, not my passage. Ah, thank you. All right. So it's the repentant ones who received the mark. Yeah, particularly existing as a nation, being grieved over the sins of the nation in a way that we never could because it is, it is right and it is important that we grieve the sins of America. But America isn't Israel. That was obviously an utterly unique situation where they were truly God's nation on the face of the earth, given the covenants, the promises, the commandments, all those things. And when that was taking place, um, it, you couldn't do anything more right than to just grieve and repent. And so God saw their heart in that moment, not their, not their works. What's your curveball? I'm, why were you in Ezekiel 9? Were, were you getting distracted? I never said turn there. <laughs> I referenced it. You weren't supposed to turn there. You're not following the rules, Jerry. Oh, yeah. Well, that's all that we see. Again, going back to, in our flesh, that, that, this is how people become materialists. Um, you know, atheists, the great scientists out there are materialists. Nothing exists if you can't see it with your plain eye or with a microscope or a telescope. If you can't see it, it doesn't exist. And in our flesh, we are so tempted to live life that way where we look around and we think, well, all that there is is all that we see. And so you see people repent and get favor from God. Well, they, because they repented, they earned favor, they merited favor from God. Yet when we study the Word of God, which is our spiritual instruction book that gives us eyes for those things that we cannot see, we learn, well, why did they repent? Well, by God's grace rooted in His choice. Thanks for that curveball. I hope I at least got a single. <laughs> Good. Joe. Because he loved them. And that's in the sermon today. So hang on to that. That's coming up in the sermon, okay? But it's because he was putting his love on display. Deuteronomy. We're going to look at three passages in Deuteronomy that show that, okay? All right. Verses 16 to 18 of Romans 9. Someone want to read those three verses? Romans 9, 16 to 18? Go ahead, Jerry. 
right, so this next statement I just wrote on the board is different, but not really, uh, from the last statement. Reflecting those three verses Jerry just read, we could say that merciful communion with, so we can pair the, uh, the words together, communion with or hardness toward God depends on God's sovereign choice, on God's sovereign choice. Verse 16 is quite clear on that. But let's discuss verse 16. And uh, first thing I want us to find out is what the it is. I don't know what your translation says exactly, but it's likely that yours has the word it in it. The NASB says, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. What's the it? Okay, that's a good, that's a very good answer. Mercy, compassion. I definitely put those two things in, yeah, the same category. Steve? Well, you're a thing and an it plus the image of God. Yeah. If that makes you feel any better. That makes me feel a little better. Okay, that's good. That's good. Should take the edge off of the yeah. thing language. <laughs> Okay, I think those are all right answers. Uh, it's, it's hard to nail down specifically what it could be, but all of those answers are on theme. When you look at the verse that precedes it, just verse 15, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. So it could just very easily be linked. God's mercy and God's compassion is the it. You could read verse 16 by saying, God's mercy and compassion does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. But you could link it to, of course, what it's all rooted in, which is God's sovereign choice. Go back to verse 11, same chapter, verse 11, talking about Jacob and Esau. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. There's that exact theme of God's choice being up to him alone, not including man in any way. Go back to verse 3 of the same chapter, chapter 9, verse 3, where Paul says, "'For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh.'" Paul is not accursed by God. He's not separated from Christ, but instead he's ultimately blessed by God, isn't he? because he's totally unified with Christ. And so the it of verse 16 could also include this idea of being unified by faith with Christ, being blessed by God in the gospel. And if you look back even farther, the end of chapter 8, look at verse 28 in Romans 8, where it says, "...we know that God causes all things to work together for good." to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And what it does, what Paul does in the passage from there is talk about how we are so unified to God because of the work of Christ that nothing can separate us. We are so brought together with our Creator that there is absolutely nothing that can happen to you that can undo it. And I think all of this is on the same theme, don't you? God's salvation applied to us by His choice, resulting in total security of the believer, that could all be the it of verse 16. All of that does not depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Amazing. So our salvation is a result of something, and verse 16 rules out a couple of things. What, what are the things that are ruled out in verse 16? Our, our salvation is the result of not these two things. And use your own words. 
It's not the result of ourself. What did you say, Dean? Our free will. Okay, not of him who wills. That's a pretty strong verse, isn't it? The man who works, yeah. So he uses the, phrase, the word runs here, but we can understand that as just a euphemism for working, for our salvation, performing religious duties to try to earn favor, to earn compassion, to earn mercy from God. Well, that's not what God's compassion and mercy depends on. His compassion and His mercy depends on Himself. Because he will have compassion on whom he has compassion, and he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. So you could say, it doesn't, if you want a little bit of alliteration, I always like a little bit of alliteration, not too much, a little bit. It doesn't depend on man's desire or his doing, his will or his working. Salvation, God's mercy, God's compassion depends on God, period. And you just got to let that sentence go. Nope, just got to let it go. Just got to let it go. Let it sit there. Let it look at you in the face. (laughs) That's your reality. I've I've shared with you before uh, a phrase that I use with my children a lot. Embrace your reality. Okay. Embrace your reality. This is your reality. All those things that encompass that word it in verse 16, they don't depend on you. Either willing, working, desiring, doing, you're out of the picture. Other than you exist. But all that stuff that's encompassed in the word it depends on God who has mercy. And this is what some call the doctrine of unconditional election. Unconditional election. The reason why that word unconditional is in there is because God's choice to show mercy was not rooted on any condition that man had to meet. God did not present His choice to all of humanity and say, okay, if you want to be chosen, then do this. There's no if-then to God's choice. If you want to be among the chosen, here's your list of things to do. That doesn't exist in the Bible. It doesn't exist. But God's choice to show mercy is entirely wrapped up in His will because the Creator is absolutely free to govern his, or to glorify Himself by governing His creatures according to His will alone. It's His will alone. That's what the Bible teaches us. And you notice that this statement in verse 16, at least in the New American Standard, it starts with the phrase, so then. That's certainly not the first time Paul has done that in this letter. Turn back with me to chapter 5. Let's look at some of the other so then statements of Paul throughout the letter. Chapter 5, verse 18 Toward the end of the chapter, Romans 5.18, Paul says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all men. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Look at chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, verse 3. Paul says, So then... Same phrase. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Paul was using the illustration of a widow remarrying to show our relationship to the law. And he's saying, so then, okay, at the start of the statement. Just make note of that. Keep note of that. Go to the end of that same chapter, chapter 7, verse 25. Paul, after describing his struggle between his sin nature and his new nature, he says, chapter 7, verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, there's our phrase, On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Next chapter, chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12, Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And he says we are to go on to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But his big statement is, we are under obligation not to the flesh. He starts that with, so then. Chapter 14, Romans 14, turn over a couple pages. Two more to look at. They're both in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 12, Paul is talking about 
conscience matters in the Christian life and how we are to go about making these decisions with our liberty. He says in Romans 14, 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And then he goes on describing how we are to live some more in verse 19, same chapter, 14, 19. He says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. You just looked at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, including our passage today, seven so-then statements of Paul. And it's, the, it's a Greek pairing of words that occurs here in Romans more than any other letter that Paul writes. Here they are. Romans is a very uh, logical book. Paul makes his arguments, and he's clearly moving from one issue to the next, and he's linking them together, and he's making very logical statements. And every time you see this so-then statement, he's summing up what he's been talking about. That's what we saw in each one of these. He's summing up the big idea. And what we see in our passage today, chapter 9, verse 16, is all these things we've been talking about the last few weeks are summed up with this statement, so then the mercy, compassion, the choice of God, our very salvation does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. So if you're going to highlight a verse in this chapter, that's a great one to highlight as it summarizes the point that Paul is seeking to get across. Jacob himself, as we use an illustration that Paul's been using, Jacob was given favor because of God's mercy. Not in anything that Jacob desired, not in anything that Jacob did, not in his willing, not in his working, not in his uh, wishing or in his running, Jacob received God's favor. Why? Because of God. That's it. There's your salvation summarized. If you know the Lord today, if you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're wondering why, because God. Not on anything that you've willed, not on anything that you've done, but because of God who shows mercy. And that should be encouraging shouldn't it? It should be comforting. It should give you hope. It should give you peace. Okay, thoughts on that? I've got 10 minutes left, and I've got nine minutes left of my notes, so we have one minute of questions. Well, the next verse destroys that. <laughs> yeah, the next verse is Pharaoh. And so... Uh, yeah, Paul is being, I think, very deliberate here in choosing his examples. And so, yeah, Pharaoh would, the example of Pharaoh really messes that up. So some people have free choice and other people don't. Yeah, I'd say give me the list of verses that explain that. Uh, it's a, a great philosophy, <laughs> maybe a fun philosophy, it's just not reality um, because the Scriptures don't present that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, there may be a few places that people could go, but it doesn't change the meaning of what we just went through. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would go that far to say that because there are all kinds of people I know and love who believe that they have... Free will is what they would say. Now, they wouldn't go as far to say free agency that I'm untainted by sin. They recognize they have a sin nature, but within that sin nature, they still have a, a freedom. And they believe that they're saved because they chose. Uh, for example, um, at a former time in my life, going back 12 years or so, I was having a conversation with a, with a man who was seeking to pull me over to basically where I am now regarding these issues. <laughs> and he was asking me, okay, so you've got, say, two guys standing out there in the parking lot. We were in a restaurant. Two guys out there, and, and we go out and we're evangelizing to them. And one of them believes and the other one doesn't. Why is that? And, of course, my answer then was because, well, one chose to believe. I mean, it's just, duh, <laughs> right? Um, now, Romans 9.16 would have been a great verse for me to be confronted with right there because it's not dependent on him who wills or on him who runs, but on God who has mercy. Um, yet, 
when I believed that, I didn't think that that was earning salvation at all. I mean, there's perhaps a case to be made, but I don't think the people who hold to that view, who are our Christian brothers, are actually thinking, yes, we're contributing something to our salvation. I don't think that. But I, there, there's potentially a case to be made for that. But we just want to be super careful in talking to our true brothers and sisters that we're going to spend eternity with and say, oh, so you believe you earned your salvation. That's, I think, crossing a line in Christian charity. So, Joe. Yeah. Do I need to tell you to embrace your reality too? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it doesn't change it, does it? Uh, that's, an, that's an honest question. Yeah, what do you do when you don't like the reality you're told to embrace? Hmm. Vain. Futile. There is, there is no rest in avoiding truth. And there's all the rest to be had by just submitting to reality. Because it's God's world and we're living in it. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. This is His world. And so when we, when we submit to that, there's great rest to be had. This, <clears throat> this section, beginning at chapter 9, verse 1, where Paul's talking about uh, salvation, particularly with Israel, uh, and speaks to the Gentiles' role and all of that. He closes this section at the end of chapter 11 with my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Everybody look at Romans 11:33. Here's a great comfort to you if your brain's feeling toasty. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And all Christians need to meet together in those verses at the end of chapter 11 and say, Amen. Right? That's just where we're going to live. Uh, we, um, we just accept what's presented to us knowing that His ways are still unfathomable. Unfathomable. <laughs> Hard word to say. And we just embrace it. Andy. Yeah. Yeah, twist it. Yeah, for sure. Yep, it's because the my will says it should be this way, so I'm going to project that on. We have to be so careful. We all have that potential. Steve, then Jim, and then I'm going to do nine minutes of notes in two minutes. So, Steve, go ahead. Uh, Colossians two, uh, verse two. Yes. Yes, absolutely. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Yep. But that's the mystery. Yeah. So it's a mystery. They cornered the market on wisdom. Yes, good. Yeah, they're the authors of wisdom and knowledge. Jim. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and that's exactly the juxtaposition that Paul presents in Romans 4. Because Abraham was not justified by works, he was justified by faith. So faith and works are by nature juxtaposed. Yep. Right, yeah. Right. Yep, 
for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, I agree. Yep, those are categorically different, for sure. All right, um, these last couple of verses, uh, 17 and 18, we see that God's mercy is never manipulated or subject to outside direction. And he gives the example of Pharaoh here, which is key because this is the sovereign God dealing with a Gentile, as I noted a few moments ago. And this is also clearly an individual interaction, isn't it, where God is dealing with Pharaoh. Some people would like to paint Romans 9 to be entirely a corporate affair where he is uh, just dealing with nations. And yes, Pharaoh was the leader of a large group of people, but he's, de- he's talking about his dealings with Pharaoh individually here. And we won't go there now, but you can jot down Exodus 9. This is where this is coming from, Exodus 9, 13 to 17, where God is clearly stating to Pharaoh that he held his position by God's doing and for God's purposes. And we see here the conclusion in verse 18 that just as God has mercy on whom He desires, He hardens whom He desires. These are both active words. God gives mercy and God hardens. He's actively involved. And as you consider, whoa, what is going on here? That seems... That just seems outside of the realm of what's cool. (laughs) How could God be doing that? Well, there are important things to remember. One is that God never hardened somebody who was righteous. Has God ever hardened a righteous man? No, He hasn't. Okay? He hasn't. In fact, as you read through the Exodus account, you'll see that in conjunction with God's hardening of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. You see that in conjunction. So, and Pharaoh, of course, has been hardening his heart from birth, as all people have been doing. And so, what is God doing? Well, He's handing him over to his sin. This goes back to Romans 1. He hands people over that they may be further hardened. He's actively involved in that process, and that's not outside of His justice. In fact, we see here in verse 17 that this is a part of God demonstrating His power. God actively hardening Pharaoh is a way that He's displaying His power and His goodness. <laughs> Treating him like a dog. Bad boy, yeah. Hardening a, a part of Israel then, because remember that's the context of what's going on. God's chosen to save only a remnant of Israel. And so hardening the rest outside of that remnant of Israel, well, he's displaying his power and his goodness today. Turn to chapter 11 real quick, Romans chapter 11, and look at verse 5 with me. I want you to see this. This is where Paul goes in the, in the argument. Chapter 5, or chapter 11, sorry, verse 5, Paul says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, talking about Israel, according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Passive verb. They received hardening from God. And drop down to verse 25, same chapter, chapter 11, verse 25. Paul goes on to say, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so this hardening isn't forever. It's a partial hardening to Israel at the present time. And there's a remnant who have been chosen, who have obtained salvation at the present time by God's grace. And that's what's happening in the present. And Paul, all the way back in chapter 9, is laying the foundation for what he's going to say in chapter 11 by saying, this is what God has done through the ages with Jew, Gentile, corporate bodies, individuals, it's all up to His sovereign choice, His will alone. And we see that so then statement again, don't we, in verse 18? So then, He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. Another great verse to highlight, wrapping up the thought. And I want to make a quick note too. Let me go 90 more seconds. Uh, none of this is apart from, God, from means, 
To say that God is sovereign in choosing who will obtain salvation and who will be hardened, that's not to say that, again, we're all robots. That's not to say um, that He just does it uh, what's the, unilaterally without means, because He's always using His current remnant to reach the next remnant, isn't He? He's always using His people to reach those who don't know Him. We'll look at the example of Jonah in the sermon today. That was all about God using His remnant to reach people. You think of the commission, the great commission of the church, His remnant to go out and proclaim the gospel. So God still uses means in doing this. And God is glorifying Himself by governing His creatures as the absolutely, capital F, free. That's who God is. And His mercy is issued based on His will alone. And there is no injustice with God in any of it. Okay? We're all still here. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much for Your Word and for Your sovereign power, Your sovereign power that has just been on display with each and every individual You save. We thank You that You're building Your church, that You're giving us a great time together today to learn and grow. We ask Your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen.